beautiful sound of brass can mean only one thing, at least in this context. It means it's time once again for UConn 360, the world's only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. We're on episode, big episode 31. Yeah! My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hello. And Ken Best. How are you doing? Hope everyone's doing well. We're we're in the home stretch here at the University of Connecticut as we head towards commencement. We've got about a month left as we record this. A little less than that as you listen to it. The uh, academic metabolism is ramping up. <laughs> everyone's getting ready for graduation or the end of the semester, as it may be. It just flies, doesn't it? It really does. It really does. And we have a great and fascinating set of stories for you this week. We do. But why don't we jump into our headlines and give you a little little fast pitter-patter, let you know what's going on in the state of the university. Julie, what's what's some fast pitter-patter for our <laughs> faithful listeners? That's a really high bar to live it is, up to. It's pretty high. Well, of course, we want to congratulate our women's basketball team for another fantastic season. Unfortunately, we did not take home a championship this year, but we made it all the way to the Final Four before falling to Notre Dame, who was then beat by Baylor for the championship. And even more exciting, our two superstar seniors, Nafisa Collier and Katie Lou Samuelson, are heading to the WNBA. Samuelson was the number four pick overall in last week's draft, going to the Chicago Sky, while Collier was chosen sixth by the Minnesota Lynx. Katie Lou will be playing alongside former UConn great Gabby Williams, and though she's sitting out next season to focus on ministry work, Maya Moore is on the Lynx. Katie Lou and the Sky will be taking on Nafisa and the Lynx in both teams' season opener on May 25th. Wow, very nice. Congratulations. Ken, what's going on? couple of items. Our photography professor, Janet Pritchard, who is a landscape photographer whose work has been exhibited in galleries and museums, pretty much everywhere across the United States and in the United Kingdom, has received a 2019 Guggenheim Fellowship. Now, this fellowship is awarded by the John Guggenheim Memorial Foundation to artists who have demonstrated exceptional capacity for significant exhibition or performance of their work. She will use this fellowship to support her current project, More Than a River, the Connecticut River Watershed, where she is taking pictures of the Connecticut River landscape and showing it as a complex set of interconnected systems where the present bumps up against the past in telling ways. Also, she's got a book coming out next year, More Than Scenery, Yellowstone, an American Love Story. And when you hear our podcast today, a new exhibit will open at Thomas J. Dodd Research Center titled From Civil Rights to Human Rights, African-American, West Indian, and Puerto Rican Housing Struggles in Hartford County, 1940 to 2019. This exhibit is the latest work by uh, Yukon historian Fiona Vernal and her students, which blends public history, community engagement, our archival research and exhibition development. It focuses on housing issues in northern Connecticut, and we will hear from her, Professor Vernal, in a future episode of the UConn 360 podcast. Very nice. I have some numbers from UConn Gives, which is the annual 36-hour philanthropic give-a-thon that wrapped up uh, last month. And I think we mentioned it in our last podcast, but we didn't have any numbers because it was still going on as we recorded. This year, UConn Gives raised $408,642 from 4,868 donors. That is just north of $130,000 more than was raised the previous year. Almost 10% of those donors, the 425 of them, gave to the UConn Extension Master Gardeners Program. Really? That got the most donors of anyone. Cool. And donations came from as far away as Texas, Colorado, and California. And I got a nice letter from Rod Rock at Jorgensen thanking me for donating to the JOY program. Very nice. Yeah. 
Oh, were you inspired by my story? I was. I donated only to I things know. that were friends of the podcast, friends as it were. Friends of the podcast. Very nice. So everyone, cooperate with us, and maybe yeah. we'll donate to your yeah, program. Just exactly. Yeah, it's kind of a pay-for-play deal. <laughs> You're nice to us. Maybe you'll get some money. Just kidding. Just kidding. But it was nice to get a letter from Rod. Very cool. So those are the headlines. Now let's get into the, uh, the stories. Let's find out what's happening. Let's learn more about our world. Julie? What's, hey. what's going on? What do you have I for us? I didn't know I was going to be first. <laughs> it's, it's unpredictable here. <laughs> we really never know. As it's a facilitator, I keep everyone guessing. Up to Tom's whim. I have a student feature this weekend. I think this student just exemplifies many of the outstanding qualities our Huskies have. Jesus Cortez Sanchez is completing his master's year of the NEAG School of Education's Integrated Bachelor's and Master's Degree Program, concentrating in music education. Jesus is also a dreamer, which is an undocumented immigrant that's covered under the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals Program that protects those who arrived in the U.S. as small children from deportation, which we know President Trump attempted to end in 2017, and I actually talked to Jesus a little bit about that. Jesus played clarinet on the John Diversa big band album, American Dreamers, Voices of Hope, Music of Freedom, which included 53 Dreamer singers and musicians and won Grammys this year in each of the categories in which it was nominated. Best Jazz Album, Best Instrumental Arrangement, and Best Improvised Jazz Solo. We spoke about how he got involved with that project, his journey to Yukon, and how he hopes to give back to the community that shaped his life. First of all, I want to congratulate you. You played on the American Dreamers album that won a Grammy in February. How did you become involved in that project? Yeah, so it actually won three Grammys. It won Grammy for Best Album, Best Jazz Album, Best Arrangement, and Best Improvised Solo. And so I played for, for the album, obviously, and I played for the arrangement. Very cool. Yeah, awesome. So. But the story goes, it's so odd. Things, things are just, they fell into place in my students teaching at Hall High School in West Hartford, Connecticut, my cooperative teacher, James Antonucci, we've known each other for years now. He gave me the opportunity to come into Hall to experience the whole amazing band program he has going on there, amazing jazz program. So it was around the all-state regional festivals where he, Dr. Diversa from the University of Miami was coming in as a guest conductor to, to conduct the all-state jazz band. I guess he started having conversations with my band director, James Antonucci, since they work closely together. And, you know, because Paul has such a great jazz program, Dr. Diversa just sometimes comes in and gives them like a master class. And so I guess conversation was brought up that Dr. Diversa was doing this awesome, awesome project on, on Dreamers. And sharing their stories and just sharing how powerful their lives are in spite of the political tension that was rising up with the Dreamers and, and the DACA specifically. And Mr. Tichu was like, oh, but coincidentally, I know Jesus for a number of years. His wife was my high school band director. Oh, so great. That's how, what that's a small world. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> so this, all, the, all these pieces are just looking up together. Mr. Antonucci asked me politely if I wanted to be part of the project and share my story. I was thrilled. I'm like... Yeah, of course. Reflecting on the struggle even to apply to college as a DACA student, you know, the, the struggle of dealing with, with the political tension there. So I thought this is a great opportunity to share the awareness of this critical, critical situation, which is DACA. And DACA gives me the opportunity to apply for work. It gives me a work permit and prevents me from being deported. And so it's something that my parents don't have. To me, that was to this, this opportunity of being able to work ties into my time here at UConn, right? What is your story? So my parents immigrated here in 1998. Uh, they were here for uh, about five years. And so they, they left my sister and I in Mexico for some time. And after some time, they felt that 
they needed to bring us here to this country because they were seeing uh, there was a very good opportunity for jobs. And so my mother goes back to Mexico and grabs her two children and brings us here into the States. In my little knowledge of where I was going, all I knew I was going to see my father. I was five when I got here. My younger sister was four. And so our idea was we're going to go see daddy. We're going to go see our father, and we're finally going to be a family together because we were living with our own grandparents. So we were so excited. We didn't understand why we were traveling so far. We didn't, we didn't understand why we had to get to the United States this way. I didn't know why I was walking so much. But we got here. We got here, and um, we got into New Haven, Connecticut. We settled there. This is a very Latin community. They call it Fair Haven. The first year there, we lived in an apartment with two other families. There was a total of 12 people, and so things became very complicated. And so eventually, we had enough money to finally get our own apartment. And I started going to uh, New Haven Public Schools. I started in kindergarten and went all the way up to high school. English, obviously, was a really big struggle for me. The way I was introduced to music, it was through the Haven Public Schools. My band director, John Miller, great, great band director, comes into the middle school program. There's no, at this point in New Haven, the magnet schools were starting to build. And so a brand new magnet school was built for our school. And he comes in and just creates this initiative with the Yale School of Music and New Haven Public Schools. And this initiative brings and gives opportunities to all the New Haven Public School students. He starts off with a summer program and test summer program with uh, Yale School of Music graduates come in and teach us. And so he creates this big, big system system of equity and access for music. To be honest, at first, you know, playing clarinet, it was really fun for me, but I didn't want to give up my summer playing clarinet. <laughs> but he, like, convinced me, he convinced my friends, and my friends were going there. So I'm like, this is a great opportunity. Fast forwarding, I'm in the program. I keep going every summer. John Miller, great band director. I started band when I was in seventh grade. Three years later, uh, unfortunately, John Miller dies. Oh, I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah, he passed away very young. And it broke all our hearts. But I continue with the program. I graduate high school. They call me back, though, to be an intern and work in the inner workings, you know, taking attendance, be mm-hmm. more of a higher position than I was as a student. And so I'm like, yes, at this point, I was in the program for about five to six years. What was the name of the program? More Summer Academy. And so I start working as an intern. I love it because of Mrs. Antonucci and Mr. Smith, my high school music teachers, they see an interest. Since I've been doing music this whole time, I'm like, you know, what are you going to school for? And I'm like, I don't know, actually, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm like, is, is, is college really for me? None of my family has been in college. I mean, we were immigrants here, and there was always that fear of like, you know, well, what if I tell my status to anyone? And especially in college applications, I'm like, what am I gonna put? And we started looking at numbers. These numbers were like $50,000. So I'm like, how, how on earth am I gonna go to school? And I didn't see college as a possibility. Mr. Smith, Patrick Smith and Mrs. Santinucci, they start inspiring me. They start encouraging me to try the process at least and go into music. And this is when it hit me. They're doing so much for me. And their input and just they're wanting for my successes so much. And I'm like, if I do take this career, I would do anything to one day be a teacher and tell a student in their face, no, no, you can do this. And I'm like, I'm going to go into education for the music, but most importantly, to inspire students just like they did for me. And I'm like, I'm going to go. And I got to UConn. I auditioned. I came in. Luckily, legislation passed where undocumented students in the state of Connecticut didn't have to pay out-of-state tuition. So I could afford tuition. Music department gave me a scholarship. Ironically, again, the New Haven Promise, this was the first year it was enacted. And New Haven Promise scholarship, what it does is it covers all your tuition. And it doesn't discriminate based on status. And so that was perfect. All these things came together. Like, I didn't have to pay for tuition. All I had to 
to play for room, room and board, and that was available. That that that's a thing that my parents could do. They could afford that, and so I started my track here in at University of Connecticut, and. Uh, here I am now. <laughs> That's great. That's just such a moving story to hear how these teachers really impacted your life. And they really did. you're going to do the same, I'm sure, yeah. for some other students. What level do you hope to teach at? You know, what? I think in my career, I really hope to teach every level. I really hope to learn and observe how the student grows over the years. I, and as a teacher, I think I need to know what does the student need to know at step one as a musician and where am I going to take him? as a senior year of high school, how can I help him grow? Mm-hmm. And I really hope just to teach all, all levels. And I read you want to go back to New Haven if you can. And Yeah, yeah. I, I, I keep telling everyone that's where my heart is. You know, I'm, I'm applying to other districts, but my heart is in New Haven. My heart is in New Haven. And especially going back there and thanking all those people who have supported me, all the people in the background that I haven't mentioned, like my private lesson teacher who never charged me a dime, Risa. <laughs> Um, oh, there's so many key elements and people who have contributed to my success that I really want to go back and think. When everything was happening with DACA last yeah. year, you know, UConn was kind of one of the first to like speak out and say, yeah. these students are welcome here. And how did how did you feel during all that? What was that like for you? Yeah, it was it was certainly a nervous point in, um, in my thought because I was working so hard in student teaching. But when this notice came, I'm like, okay, so I'm here trying really hard. And there's a possibility that when I graduate, if they take this away, <laughs> my work is gonna go. My work is gonna go to waste. And so I gotta be honest. I was a bit. I was a bit down. But uh, advice from my peers, from people at NIAC, especially the people at NIAC, have just been so wonderful. Especially my academic advisors, Mia and Dom, and Dr. Bernard and Dr. Abramo, who, who are just you know pushing me to say you know don't pay attention to these things. Just keep doing what you're doing. Look forward. Stick with that same vision. And just really pushed through. But it was hard. It was a hard hit for me, to be yeah. honest. But all I, all I did was I put it aside and I kept focusing on what I had to do, which is learn how to be a great teacher and mm-hmm. focus on the students I was teaching. But what does music mean to you? Oof, that's a <laughs> it's a loaded question. Exactly. Um, <laughs> we'll end on the loaded question. Music specifically to me, pertaining to my life, it means an opportunity. An opportunity I, I humbly don't believe in coincidence. I think music in my life strategically has been placed by by someone up there in the sky to really give me the opportunity to help help people and help not only help them become musicians, no, help them to become a good person, a good person and a good citizen, um, despite where they come from, despite their racial, despite their gender, despite what they identify with. It really is an avenue for me to encourage other people, to bring people together and just grow together as good citizens. Yeah, I think that's the best way I could describe music for me. Yeah. very nice and I think it's a real testament to kind of like the broad range of interests and talents that students here have that they're we have so many students who are good in more than just one thing it's really impressive mm-hmm. I totally agree with that and music everybody likes music we like music all three of us in this room and speaking of music I do want to thank Jesus for providing the music clips that started and ended that piece the first was the Yukon clarinet chamber ensemble from his freshman year in 2014 playing Tico Tico no Fuba by Zaquinha de Abreu and at the end you heard the Yukon clarinet ensemble from his senior year this past fall performing 
Aragonese from Carmen Opera by Georges Bizet. And those were lots of words that I had trouble saying. Well, you did you did great. Thanks. Thanks, guys. You did great. Ken, what do you have for us this week? Well, we're going to stay in the realm of music. Uh, we're going to go back four years to the University of Limerick in Ireland. Did you st- stop there when you were in Ireland? I've been to Limerick, but not to the university. Well, four years ago, 80 scholars from 30 nations uh, gathered to discuss how various cultures use music to change the status quo in societies. The conference was titled Songs of Protest, and among those who delivered papers uh, were Yukon music professors Mary Ellen Junda and Robert Stevens, uh, who for several years have done research on one of the early African-American cultures in the United States, the Gullahs, including protest songs about their subjugation dating back to the early 19th century. Uh, A book of essays from this conference titled Songs of Social Protest, International Perspectives, was published recently, and uh, Professors Junda and Stevens have the lead essay titled Social Protest and Resistance in African-American Song, Traditions and Transformation. And in it, they trace uh, what they describe as the unbroken history of protest music in the United States, concluding that African-American music has served as a means of establishing identity and and the power of that assertion is the claim that all black music is protest music. I sat down in this very studio with Professor Stevens recently, and we discussed protest music. The experience of enslavement uh, was a powerful one, and people had to find a way to coexist with their everyday lives. And music and song was an important part of that. And it was also a way to express displeasure with the conditions in which they found themselves. Song and music uh, and dance became an integral part of how people chose to address the conditions they found themselves in. In time, the idea of protest carried over into other areas as African Americans moved out of the South. During the Civil Rights Movement, protest took on a different flavor. It has almost always been a part of the African American experience, but it's how they chose to manifest it. Not only in their day-to-day lives, but how they communicated it to others. One point that you do make is that protest has always included music. Yes. And you trace it back to 1817 at a meeting yes. in Philadelphia, rejecting uh, the idea of a return, the return to Africa movement. Right. So from that, that point, we go forward. And then as you trace things going through the civil rights movement right. in the 1960s, and then pretty much every other major protest event, music is present. Right. And I, I think it's important that you point out that that meeting in in, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, where about 3,000 people attended, there were all men, there were no women. But I think this meeting is important for a lot of reasons. One is it shows the full transition that many made from being African to what they thought were being American. And they were making the argument that we can't go back because those ties that we knew have been severed and those relationships have been changed, altered in ways that kind of go back. That was a northern uh, protest uh, movement. These kinds of events were less evident in the South, and when they did take place, they took place uh, in much smaller settings. That's not to say that protest was not a part of what people believed and did, because it was. But it didn't take the form, the manifest form, that uh, that this larger pro- uh, protest took. And it was later, too, that others uh, chose to find ways to express in song displeasure with certain things that were happening in the South. One of the most famous examples is, of course, Billie Holiday, where she talks about this bitter fruit. 
sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's covert, sometimes it has a religious flavor, sometimes it does not. But in all cases, it is used as a medium to express displeasure with conditions that are not favorable. Because we're talking about the early beginnings of this, use of music in <clears throat> protest. You do trace the early beginnings of the Georgia Sea Island legacy to Bessie Jones, who was not a member of the Gullah community, but joined the singing group right. as, as a leader. And really, <clears throat> if you go online and you, you look for videos, you will see her singing. Uh, and then the transformation of the leadership to uh, Doug Quimby mm -hmm. and following his passing to his wife, Frankie Quimby, mm -hmm. who you brought up here to work with students at UConn and to right. do a performance. Right. What does it mean to have that strong of a link to mm -hmm. the past? Good question. Um, Bessie Jones, although she may not have been Gullah herself, her grandfather was. And her grandfather lived to be 102. And a lot of what she sang... Uh, and what she did, she learned from her grandfather, who was an enslaved person. She also had a, uh, a good close work, working relationship with Alan Lomax. Uh, Lomax went down south, and he heard the group, and he was very impressed by them. That is the oldest ongoing group of that type in, in the country. There's another group, the uh, uh, Ring Shadows, which is a new group. But the Georgia Island Singers are the oldest and the longest uh, group in its existence today. Frankie and the group don't perform as much as they used to, but they are they're an important part of that, that history. One of the points that you do make also is that uh, there's social context within the music, and there are different ways that has put out prohibition of percussion mm. uh, back in the old days was uh, something that was resisted by hand claps and body hits mm -hmm. uh, to reproduce mm -hmm. uh, percussion. Some of the language that was used referenced things that were kind of a, almost a code to those who understood it in the way of protesting uh, oppression and uh, yearning for freedom. You, you cite a couple of different uh, songs, uh, Juba, Little Sally Walker, and others. Talk a little bit about how that worked. These are songs that, that cover a variety of things. They were songs that children learned. And but they also had dual meanings, so that the audience for uh, these songs were twofold. They were designed for people who were expecting to hear music that was going to be entertaining, but they also served an important purpose, and that purpose was to ex express displeasure with things that were not uh, as they as they were. Little Sally Walker has various meanings. Pat and Juba uh, has various meanings. Uh, to for example, in Juba, you know, we're talking about food. And we're talking about who gets to eat what kind of food. And the song also talks about in order for the community to survive, you have to share. So that's an important part of, of that tradition. And they talk about the relationship between owners and the enslaved. One of the things that's very interesting about this book is that after you set the table uh, with, the, with the opening chapter about African-American traditions and, and music and how it affects and is always present in protest— Almost 600 pages later, after going through all the chapters, uh, people can learn about an analysis of heavy metal, a video produced by Michael Moore by a band uh, protesting the war in Iraq, an essay about the hip-hop scene in Uganda, a story about the exploitation of Syrian children, overthrowing a Portuguese dictator, protest songs in Ireland. What does it say to you that this fixture in really political life is there. The first thing is that if there's a 
unifying feature about the book. That unifying feature is that music is stuff that people do, and they do it for a reason. The context in which they do it is defined to a particular group or a particular location. But the common bond in all of these pieces is that people do music and they do it for a reason. It has a context. And to fully understand it, you need to understand it within this context. So when um, I remember the presentation of uh, the person who did the piece on hip-hop in Uganda and, and talking about it, what, what struck me uh, up about the piece is that we're talking about an art form that was developed here in the United States that migrates halfway around the world and put into a different setting and being used in a completely different context to serve a particular local need. In each of these instances, this is music uh, that people do, and they're not doing it because it's an abstract thing to think about. They're doing it for specific reasons. It grows out of certain circumstances. When need dictates, then the art form shapes itself to articulate that need. And I think that's the thing that binds uh, the pieces in this book. How are you using this information in the classroom uh, or plan to? The book could almost by itself be a basis for a course. You know, we are very much aware of, of issues around social justice today. I mean, that's a, that's a common thing. We are aware of polarization that's taking place in our society. And the arts have always played a role in articulating the, the needs and the circumstances surrounding these kinds of differences. So uh, even today, uh, you know, we talk about uh, polarization on the right, polarization on the left. If we look, at, and we don't have to scratch too deeply to see that, that the various art forms that people have chosen um, articulate those points of view. Now the question is that, and this has always been an issue in the past, I'm not so sure we feel it quite so much today, is that, how can the arts, or how can music in particular, help to uh, bridge some of these chasms? This is an issue that is going to require more work. There are people who are attempting to, to do that, people who are trying to find the similarities rather than dwell on differences. But I have faith that music has that capability. It's worked in the past, and I think that it, in time, we're going to find some solutions to some of the issues that we're dealing with today. very interesting, Ken. It actually reminded me, um, their whole idea that black music is protest music reminded me of my conversation with Professor Jeff Ogbar back in episode 20, if you want to go back and check it out. Shameless plug. But he did talk to me about how hip-hop emerged as African-Americans were trying to reflect what was going on in the world and still continues as that through line. This book is very interesting. You heard the reference to uh, music relating to Afghanistan, which is current. It's six, over 600 pages of really interesting reading by people writing about every form of music you can possibly think of. Cool. We're going to leave the world of music now and turn to the world of history, specifically the world of Tom's History Corner. Here at UConn, we have two springtime traditions. Only two? One, well, okay, two that I'm thinking of right now. 
among our springtime traditions are two that are related. One is the publication of the Daily Scampus, which is the annual sort of satirical, uh, uh, humorous, occasionally crude <laughs> yep. newspaper published by the staff of the Daily Campus. And the other tradition related to it is outrage over the Daily Scampus. <laughs> so we're going to go back to the spring of 1960. And that year, the Scampus was published on May 2nd. It wasn't always April Fool's Day. It has been for a long time. For whatever reason, it was published on May 2nd this year. Probably to let the students escape before it came out. Well, no, but The student did not escape. The student. No, but <laughs> like back then, they went almost to the end of the month. So like they, that, that commencement was in June back then. Hmm. Um, if anyone knows why the Scampus was not always published on April Fool's yeah, Day. Yeah, let us know. Well, I'm actually going to be soliciting a lot of uh, information from our listeners on this one. So... <laughs> Uh, the Scampus came out, and uh, it's online. You can find it at the digital archive along with most issues of the Daily Campus, and, and before that, the Connecticut Campus. And it's, you know, it's pretty crude. Mm. Uh, there's some crude jokes about President Jorgensen. There's advertisements featuring pictures of scantily clad women, that kind of thing. Mm. This provoked a lot of uh, anger on campus. The Student Senate had a resolution to stop funding wow. the, the Daily Campus, but they ultimately voted that down. And people thought things had kind of blown over until about a week later, the editor of the paper, Richard McGurk, was expelled and had to leave campus immediately by the order of, uh, this is at, in, into our uh, list of great UConn names, by the order of Dr. Arwood Northby, yeah, who like was the uh, director of student personnel, which I think was probably dean of students' uh, similar position. So McGurk was expelled for this, and uh, the reaction was actually sort of outrage across campus. So he was expelled for being the editor-in-chief of, of the campus. campus, and then there was outrage over the expulsion. his expulsion, even though there was outrage over the campus. Yes. So uh, Arwood Northby had said that uh, it was uh, pornographic and obscene. Mm. So there were rallies. There was a student resolution, student senate resolution in favor of McGurk. There were petitions by graduate students, the faculty senate, and the uh, AAUP expressed formal resolutions showing opposition, um, a rally in front of the uh, old administration building, which was, I think, uh, Bud's, was attended by more than a 1,000 students. Wow. According to the Boston Globe, it got national coverage, uh, was picked up by the AP and UPI, was written about by the Hartford Current and the Hartford Times. The Hartford Current, by the way, was decidedly pro-expulsion in its <laughs> coverage. Interesting. There were questions from politicians in Hartford, but uh, Jorgensen would not back down. So I was kind of interested about what happened in this, this whole thing, and I was not the only one, because in April 2012, Daily Campus columnist Jesse Rifkin wrote about it, and he actually tracked down Larry Dupuis, who replaced McGurk as the editor. When McGurk was expelled, Dupuis had been the managing editor, and he became the editor-in-chief. He later went on to become director of on-air advertising for ABC Television, so wow. he had a successful career. He's now retired, living in New York. Uh, and he said that at the time, he thought McGurk was being expelled because he had been like a crusading editor who was directing reporting and also writing editorials against a lot of these restrictions on student behavior. Like students at the time had to wear coats and ties in the evening and there were curfews and there were all these different things. And McGurk was apparently opposed to this. So this was kind of a straw that broke the camel's back. And this was like the excuse they could get rid of, they found to get rid of McGurk. Right. In Dupuis' estimation, anyway, and he said to Rifkin, while we were screaming freedom of the press, they were saying, you're not free. We own you. Because they did at the time. The Daily Campus wasn't actually independent until 1967. It was a, hmm. essentially a university publication before then. McGurk was a really interesting guy. He came to the campus kind of late. He'd gone to Boston University for two years, and then he joined the Army. And then he was in the Army for a few years, where he became a sergeant. Uh, and then he left the Army, and he worked for the Waterbury Republican before it became the Republican-American. And then he went to Columbia University for a year, and then he came to UConn. Wow. He so had lived. He had lived. He was in his mid-20s. And even more ironically, he had opposed the publication of this campus. He thought it was stupid. And didn't think it should be published, but he was outvoted, so he's like, okay. Gosh, poor guy. Yeah. 
He opposed it, and then he ran it, and then and then he got he took the blame for it because when you're when you're on top of the masthead. Mm-hmm. So in the very last issue of the spring semester that year, May twentieth, he wrote a column about the whole affair. Now as an ex student, and he said he was initially kind of like really angry and felt like his rights had been violated. And then he sat down and met with a, a woman student who had really been offended by the publication of it, and he he heard her out and really started to feel like she had a point. And he wrote, quote, where I had been aesthetically disgusted by the product I had allowed to be turned out and had participated in, I began to feel a repugnance of a much deeper nature. I cannot say that I have come fully to grips with all the issues surrounding the publication of the campus. I cannot dream as Jacob, but I think I have begun to see the moral responsibility. So my natural question is what happened to Richard McGurk? Right. You couldn't find that? Can't find anything. Guys, help us out. I asked the folks of the Daily Campus Alumni Facebook group, and I want to thank some of the people who responded. Steve Strait, who's an alum, actually uh, sent me an article that the Daily Campus had run about this whole thing in 1979, Mm -hmm. but there's nothing in there about what happened to McGurk. Hmm. Can't find anything online. A few people suggested some Facebook profiles, but... Didn't look like it was him. I mean, he was born in probably the mid-30s, right? and all these people were way too young. Oh, man. Well... Again, we've learned that things that are happening now that yeah. seem unusual know, and crazy right. have been happening for time immemorial. Time is, is a flat circle. Time is a flat circle. Um, it was not unusual to have requirements like wearing jackets and ties and dresses. To doesn't mean go they to had meals. to like it. I understand that. <laughs> it's probably particularly galling if you were like a 25 year old army veteran. Right? Like, what are you telling me what you to know, do yeah, at being this public told university? How to dress. Yeah. Um, That's fascinating. I did find Larry Dupuis on LinkedIn, and I sent him a message. Uh, so fingers crossed he'll respond. But I mean, I believe he's retired now, so I don't know how often he checks LinkedIn. Would love to know more about this story. Yeah, really. If you know anything about what happened to Richard McGurk, better yet, if you are Richard McGurk. Sounds like he learned and grew from the experience. Yeah. Then, which is a very mature thing to do. Yeah. I'd be really, really interested to know what happened to him. So if you do know, you can add us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. You can send me an email, tom.breen at uconn.edu. That is the story of the Daily Scampus from 1960. And uh, we want to thank all of you for listening this week. And please tune in two weeks hence. And if you haven't subscribed for some reason, you're not going to at this point. (laughs) But just, I don't know, do it. Just do it. Rate us on whatever. I'm sorry. I hate when podcasts do this and they try to like guilt you into... (laughs) If you haven't done it yet, you're not going to do it. Just listen, man. Just listen. That's all we want. And let us know if you know what happened to Richard McGurk. Julie. Yep. Is there anything you want to tell people? I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Nothing else. Ken. Uh, I am all over UConn today this week. That's true. And we'll be next week, I think. We'll see. How many more WHUS um, broadcasts do we have? Uh, WHUS uh, broadcasts will end uh, at the end of April as we wind down the academic year, and then we will be back on WHUS in the fall after we have a chance to do our summer podcasts and prepare those. Who's taking our time slot in the summer? Don't know yet because the schedule is just about to be formed. Oh. Well, I hope it's a Grindcore program. Um, well, you can apply for a show so. and be a Grindcore. No grind one is core. asking for that. Well, I applied for a show and I think I'll get one. Good. Like I have. A Grindcore show? No. Okay. The show is called Good Music because as Duke Gellington says, there's only two kinds of music. Good music and the other kind. And on that note, there's only two kinds of podcasts, our podcast and everybody else. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Make that <deep>. <laughs> <laughs>